This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is Westminster's Confession, The Abandonment of Van Til's Legacy by Gary North, Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Copyright Gary North, 1991. Appendix D, Calvin's Millennial Confession. Dr. Godfrey refers to, quote, Calvin's sober amillennialism, end quote. Sober, yes. Amillennial, no. If Calvin was anything, he was a postmillennialist. And if Dr. Godfrey and the Westminster faculty assert otherwise, they need to prove their case. They should not assume everything that they need to prove, but Godfrey does on this issue. He does not cite any book on the topic that confirms his thesis, nor does he even mention Bonson's early essay on the topic. He just tosses out a gratuitous side comment, as if he were Moses, coming down from Sinai. This is typical of the whole book. It does not interact with the body of theonomic literature that a 400-page critical symposium would be expected to refute. I wrote in chapter 2 that Calvin's writings reveal a dualism with respect to his views on civil law and God's sanctions in history. We find traces of the same annoying dualism in Calvin's discussions of the future of the Church and Christendom. I say traces because to the extent that Calvin espoused any consistently developed view of the future of Christianity, it was optimistic. But sometimes he has adopted language that has led to his amillennial followers to conclude that their view of the future of Christianity was also his. Calvin's Pessimism An example of this pessimism is his discussion of salvation and peace. Two promised blessings for believers in Christ. What is implied by this promise? Quote, Hence, these things are connected together, salvation and peace. Not that we enjoy this joyful and peaceful state in the world, for they greatly deceive themselves who dream of such a quiet state here, as we have to engage in a perpetual warfare, until God at length gathers us to the fruition of a blessed rest. We must, therefore, contend and fight in this world. Thus, the faithful shall ever be exposed to many problems. And hence, Christ reminds his disciples, quote, In me ye have peace, but in the world, end quote. What? Sorrows and troubles, end quote. Yet personal sorrows and troubles do not deny the possibility of kingdom expansion and victory in history. For example, we all recognize that individual inventors have many troubles and frustrations. This does not deny the possibility of technological progress. What about personal spiritual progress? It is not only possible, it is mandatory, Calvin taught. Quote, No one shall set out so inauspiciously as not daily to make some headway, though it be slight. Therefore, let us not cease so to act that we may make some unceasing progress in the way of the Lord, and let us not despair at the slightness of our success. Dot, 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 end quote. The question, then, is the compound growth of righteousness. Can it outpace the compound growth of wickedness in history? Will the covenant breakers overwhelm the covenant keepers in history? Will the kingdom of Satan's leaven replace the kingdom of God's leaven in history? No. This is why we are told by Christ to pray, Thy kingdom come. 
Calvin wrote in the Institutes, quote, From this it appears that zeal for daily progress is not enjoined upon us in vain, for it never goes so well with human affairs that the filthiness of vices is shaken and washed away, and full integrity flowers and grows, end quote. But what about the ungodly? On this point, Calvin had no doubts. Quote, Meanwhile, he protects his own, guides them by the help of his spirit into uprightness, and strengthens them to perseverance. But he overthrows the wicked conspiracies of enemies, unravels their stratagems and deceits, opposes their malice, represses their obstinacy, until at last he slays Antichrist with the spirit of his mouth and destroys all ungodliness by the brightness of his coming. Quote. The Kingdom of God Calvin saw the kingdom of God as advancing throughout history. Quote, Again, as the kingdom of God is continually growing and advancing to the end of the world, we must pray every day that it may come. For to whatever extent iniquity abounds in the world, to such an extent the kingdom of God, which brings along with it perfect righteousness, is not yet come. End quote. This is an important passage, for it shows that Calvin saw the two kingdoms as mutually exclusive, as one advances, the other retreats. They cannot both advance at once. Thus, any discussion of the advance of God's exclusively ecclesiastical kingdom, paralleling Satan's advancing external cultural kingdom, a basic theme of amillennialism, would have been unacceptable to Calvin. The war between the two kingdoms is external and continual. He made this quite clear in his commentary on Psalm 21, 8. Quote, dot, dot, dot. For it would not have been enough for the kingdom to have flourished internally, and to have been replenished with peace, riches, and abundance of all good things, had it not also been well fortified against the attacks of foreign enemies. This particularly applies to the kingdom of Christ, which is never without enemies in this world. Bonson cites Calvin's exposition of 2 Thessalonians 2.8, referring to the final rebellion of the Antichrist. Calvin wrote, Quote, dot, dot, dot. Antichrist would be holy and in every respect destroyed when that final day of the restoration of all things shall arrive. Paul, however, intimates that Christ will in the meantime, by the rays which he will emit previously to his advent, put to flight the darkness in which Antichrist will reign, just as the sun, before he is seen by us, chases away the darkness of the night by the pouring forth of his rays. This victory of the word therefore, will show itself in this world. Dot, 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 end quote. Calvin cited Micah's prophecy that someday men will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. He admitted that there are still wars going on. The prophet's words have not yet been fulfilled. Calvin said, quote, That which the prophet says here has not hitherto taken place, but inasmuch as the number of the faithful is small, and the greater part despise and reject the gospel, so it happens that plunders and hostilities continue in the world. How so? Because the prophet speaks here only of the disciples of Christ. He shows the fruit of his doctrine, that wherever it strikes a living root, it brings forth fruit. But the doctrine of the gospel strikes roots hardly in one out of a hundred. End quote. So in order to have a universal fulfilling of this prophecy, there must be a great multiplication of the disciples of Christ. This will take place in the future. Quote, it seems that the prophet does not describe here 
the state of the church for a time, but shows what would be the kingdom of Christ to the end. end quote. A day of small beginnings. These and many other passages reveal Calvin's postmillennialism. So far, so good. But in his comments on the parallel prophecy in Isaiah 2.4, his pessimism intruded. This condition of plowshares will come only when, quote, the kingly power of Christ is acknowledged, dot, dot, dot. But since we are still widely distant from the perfection of that peaceful reign, we must always think of making progress. And it is excessive folly not to consider that the kingdom of Christ here is only beginning, end quote. This still is compatible with postmillennialism, a long time frame. But then he added, quote, The fulfillment of this prophecy, therefore, in its full extent, must not be looked for on earth, end quote. To its full extent, yes. But what about in between? He did not say. He ended his comments with this, quote, It is enough if we experience the beginning, and if, being reconciled to God through Christ, we cultivate mutual friendship and abstain from doing harm to anyone, end quote. If the, quote, we, end quote, here, meant those living in his day, then there is nothing necessarily amillennial implied by the passage. But by focusing people's attention to the necessity, incomplete fulfillment of the prophecy on earth and the present distance from that future post-historical fulfillment, he unquestionably adopted the language of modern Calvinistic amillennialism. He focused on the personal relationships of church and family rather than the real possibility of transforming the social and cultural aspects of a fallen civilization. This also is basic to Calvinistic amillennialism. In his comments on Matthew 24:37, he compared the world of the era of the return of Christ to the days of Noah and Sodom. Quote, Since indifference of this sort will exist about the time of the last days, believers ought not to indulge themselves after the example of the multitude. End quote. He did not link this prophecy to the last days of Old Covenant Israel, but to the last days of the world. So, we know that there will be scoffers and lax faith. Calvin's Optimism But consider his interpretation of 1 Corinthians 15.27 For he hath put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. Calvin wrote, quote, He insists upon two things. First, that all things must be brought under subjection to Christ before he restores to the Father the dominion of the world. And secondly, that the Father has given all things into the hands of His Son, in such a way as to retain the principal right in His own hands. From the former of these it follows, that the hour of the last judgment is not yet come. From the second, that Christ is now the medium between us and the Father, in such a way as to bring us at length to Him. Hence He immediately infers as follows, After He shall have subjected all things to Him, then shall the Son be subjected to the Father. Let us wait patiently until Christ shall vanquish all his enemies and shall bring us, along with himself, under the dominion of God, that the kingdom of God may in every respect be accomplished in us. Calvin was an optimist regarding the long-term success of Christianity in history. In this sense, the mid-17th century Puritans were faithful to Calvin's legacy. So were the postmillennialists of Princeton Seminary in the 19th century. Today's amillennial Calvinists have abandoned this postmillennial heritage in the name of Calvin, but without the documentation from the corpus of his writings. They teach and preach 
as if they were faithful heirs of Calvin on the question of millennialism. But they are not. It is far easier to make the case that Calvin was not a theonomist than it is to make the case that he was not an optimist regarding the future of Christianity on earth. Dialecticism It is possible, and has been done, to suggest a dialectical relationship between Calvin's view of the present world and the post-resurrection world. This is the standard interpretation of his millennial views within all millennial scholarship. The Barthian theologian Heinrich Quistorp writes of Calvin's view of hope, quote, What is promised to faith is properly the contradiction of all that is visible. Righteousness where there is sin, external life in place of death, resurrection in place of extinction, blessedness where pain, fullness where hunger and thirst, divine help where a helpless cry. In face of these contradictions between the divine word and reality, faith can only subsist through hope which trusts in the word of promise more than in the reality of the world and of ourselves. End quote. This Barthian dialecticism, Bible versus history, is mirrored in very similar statements by Calvinistic amillennial theologians. The question is, what was Calvin's view of progressive sanctification in history? Did he see it applying to institutions as well as to individuals? Did he view the race that Christians run in history as a relay, not just a one-man event? Did he see the growth in history of the cultural influence of the gospel? He did not address these questions directly, which creates problems for the historian. But it should be clear from the passages cited that Calvin did believe that the gospel's influence would expand over time. Conclusion Because Calvin believed in Christendom, as did all of his Christian contemporaries, he did not address himself directly to the social implications of his millennial views. He assumed that there would be a tight relationship between individual conversion and social consequences. In short, he was not a modern evangelical pietist. He surely did not take the position of his modern amillennial followers, namely, that the eternal kingdom and the historic kingdom are in dialectical relation to each other. That is, that God's eternal kingdom will encompass everything, but the historic kingdom excludes culture in general and civil government specifically. Calvin's millennial confession is not Westminster's millennial confession. Therefore, Westminster could not hire Bonson and had to fire Shepard. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.